So if I tell you that today we're going to talk about history, that's risky. Because I know some of you are going to think, oh, I don't like history. Time to check out already. And he just said his first sentence. Well, I didn't say today we're going to talk about history. So hang in there. I've been the person who doesn't want to learn about history. I'm not that person anymore. So I'm going to try to help you out a little bit if you are that person. Uh, some of you think, oh, I love history. This is going to be great. So got you folks in the bag. No problem. Uh, others of you, a little bit more nuanced, are thinking, well, I like some kinds of history. I may be interested, depending on what kind of history we're going to talk about. And still others of you with some more nuance might think, well, certain kinds of history I like, and it depends on who the teacher is. How good of a storyteller are they going to be? Well, I promise you today we're going to see some great history that actually is relevant to every single one of us on planet Earth. Today we're going to be looking at redemptive history, how God has worked in real time and space in history to accomplish freedom, redemption, freedom, spiritual freedom for everyone who trusts in his son. So that's the best kind of history. Uh, not only that, we're going to see it in the life of the early church because we're going to be in the, the 11th chapter of the book of Acts. And so we're seeing redemptive history applied and worked out in the lives of real people like us. That's interesting. Uh, not only that, we have a good history teacher. And I'm not going to pat myself on the back because I don't even play one on television. That's not me. But Dr. Luke is competent. He's a competent historian. He's the human author to the gospel according to Luke. He's the human author of the book we call the book of Acts. And not only that, Dr. Luke is competent himself because of his own training, but he has a little bit of help, understatement. Um, he is writing with the help of the Holy Spirit under divine inspiration. So he's an ultimate storyteller, uh, the best storyteller ever, if you will. So we've got redemptive history. Not only that, we've got a great storyteller, history teller. Not only that, the things we're going to learn, not all of them, I'll be honest, but some of the things we're going to learn in Acts 11 when we study history, the history of the early church, have a direct influence and impact and application to us in the 21st century. And I'm not just saying that actually matters for us and how we think about the gospel, how we think about other people, how we think about gospel proclamation, it actually matters to us. So hope you found Acts 11. We're going to do 30 verses. If you're just joining us, uh, before I was gone for a bit, we've been studying this book together. So chapter a week when we can, um, and I think we'll be able to do chapter 11 today, learning a lot about Christ and how his work applies to different kinds of people and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper when we're done, which is going to be a fitting conclusion. So Acts 11, uh, here we go. Verse 1 says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, think southern Israel, Jerusalem's in Judea, but it encompasses a lot more. Maybe if you were there, you'd say Judea to the southern part of Israel, from the Med on the west to the dead on the east. So from the med to the dead throughout that region. So it's a broad scope kind of thing uh, throughout Judea. They heard, so word is getting out all around the region. They heard that the Gentiles, remember Gentiles means godly, or excuse me, godless. Okay, so Gentiles would be the godless, the, those, those who don't worship the one true and living God. Lots of you already know this, but... 
took me a long time in my Christian life before, before someone pointed out the obvious. Uh, in the biblical narrative, you have two kinds of people. There's one human race, two kinds of people. There are the Jews, a very small minority select group of people for a certain task, for a certain time. The Jews, the holy nation of Israel, and everyone else. The Gentiles, those who don't worship Yahweh, the one true and living God. Okay? I won't go this slow the whole time, I promise. But they had heard, these Jews throughout that Judaic region had heard that the godless, the Gentiles, also had received the word of God. And the word of God there is clearly in light of the flow of the book of Acts is not a generic uh, statement for Bible. It's a synonym for gospel. There's all different kinds of synonyms for the gospel. That's one of them surely here. So here's what's happening. The Jewish people in that region, it's becoming such a big deal for the godless to become godly. It's become such a common practice. Maybe that's an overstatement, but there's enough momentum that word is out on the street amongst the Jews. You know what? The godless Gentiles, sometimes the Jews referred to them as dogs, not Pomeranians or poodles, but street dogs that are unclean. Okay. You stay away from them. They might be rabid. So they are coming to believe in our God. They're coming to repent of their sins. They're coming to believe that Jesus is their Savior too. Their King, Messiah, Deliverer too. Now what would you think should be the right response? You would think, right? Yes, isn't this great? There's good news not only for us and for our families to believe in Jesus for forgiveness. Remember, Jesus means Savior. Isn't it amazing that those people that we've had to stay away from, those people that we've shunned, those people that we've stiff-armed, those people have come to believe in our same Savior, and now we can have so many more friends, and our spiritual family can become so much bigger. This is good news. Praise God. He is indeed the Savior, not only of the Jews. He's the Savior of the world. All different kinds of people. Well, that's revisionist history. That was just pretending, okay? Because that's not what happens. Verse 1, we read it rightly, but then verse 2 says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So it's not, praise God for doing this. It's, Eeyore time, at best, <laughs> right? They're grumbling and complaining and criticizing. Not only that, they're criticizing. How, how, what are you thinking, Peter? You're actually accepting them? That doesn't make any sense. It actually does make sense. But at this point in time, they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're criticizing. These who are known as, did you see there? They're, they're called the circumcision party. Doesn't sound like much of a party to me, but I digress. They're known for being the circumcision party. Some of you are part of the independent party. Some of you are part of the Democratic Party. Some of you are part of the Republican Party. How'd you like to have that that sign in your yard during election time? The circumcision party. (laughs) Joking aside, these were apparently professing Christians who were Jews. 
And the Jew, Jewish men were to be circumcised to signify that they were different. They weren't like the Gentiles. They weren't like the nations. It made them holy, distinct, different than everyone else. And God wanted them to be different, unique, distinct from everyone else. And it wasn't just circumcision. It was food laws and ceremonial laws and all kinds of strict laws. And these were people, let's give them a break. So all joking aside, Jewish people who were serious about what God requires, and now they've come to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of what God requires but there's still confusion in their minds. How, how, how is it that you can be acceptable before God because we've been doing it this way for now for a long time and, and have the males not circumcised? So they're known as the circumcised party of the circumcision. Now, they're, they're, gonna, they're going to be won over by Peter's argument. But you should just know that this, this remains a real struggle in the life of the church. Uh, so much so that there will be those who will dig their heels in and they will be those we call in history the Judaizers. They're just going to deny the gospel. They're going to deny, deny that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's not these guys. They're going to come around. But there will be those like Paul criticizes in Philippians chapter 3 that insist that faith in Jesus plus obedience is required for acceptance. And Paul's going to read them the riot act because they've lost sight of actually what Jesus has done and who he is. These don't seem to be those people, but I'm bringing it up because this is, let's, let's cut them a break for a while. It would be a weird transition time. It would be kind of hard to think through. That's why this history is important. But with some more water under the bridge, it becomes rather clear. You don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You don't have to be under the Jewish laws and ceremonies to be a Christian and be acceptable before God. That's the takeaway. Colossians 2.11 will say, In Him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So we're moving from one to the other. It will no longer be necessary because there's a spiritual cutting away, if you will. But the confusion is lingering. Verse 4. But Peter, sympathetic because of recent history and because he's had to think all this stuff through in his own mind. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. Okay, let me, let me, this is patient Peter. Okay, let me explain to you how I've come to believe what I believe so that I'm willing to eat with those we used to call dogs. So you can come around too. He began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa. So on the Mediterranean Sea, that significant seaport town, I was in the city of Joppa praying. If you were there praying, you'd, it would be an open eye prayer because it's so beautiful. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to me. Who here thinks that sounds familiar? Well, it's really familiar because it's what he talked about in Acts chapter 10. This has come up actually more than once. It's a big deal to see this because what you conclude about the food will help you understand the people as well. It'll help you understand that the Jewish law is no longer required to be acceptable before God because now 
It's been fulfilled by Christ. So with that in mind, verse 6 says, looking at it closely, I observed. So Peter, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. In other words, I'm a strict observer of Leviticus 11. I keep kosher. Sometimes today Jewish people say they have a kosher kitchen. He's had a kosher kitchen and a kosher mouth. He's never violated the Levitical command, uh, requirements of Leviticus 11. That's what he's saying. Verse 9 says in our text, But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 10, This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. So sometimes we like to kind of throw stones at Peter for his hard-headedness. Here we would want to give him a thumbs up and compliment him for his, what? His humility. You know what? I was a slow learner. Um, God was patient with me, but I did come around. I want to help you all come around as well. I'm being patient with you. Let me tell you how it went down. Now, I do want to ask you this question before we move on, and that would be, it says that God has made these things clean. How, how is it that God would make unclean animals clean? So they're con- considered forbidden in Leviticus 11, but now they're not forbidden. How could God, he, um, God has made them clean. I think we could answer that different ways. I hope you're tracking with me. Well, God could make them clean by, by let, let's go for the big one first. Jesus fulfilled all of the legal obligations. Jesus fulfills the law in general. He fulfills the love God and love neighbor requirement, which is a general law for all people, not just Jews. He fulfills it. Remember, Jesus himself said when he was on earth, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he fulfills the law in general, but he also was a Jewish individual born under the Jewish strict law, that law that would show everybody, you think you're a good person? You think you obey God's law perfectly? You think you love God and love neighbor? Well, let's add the mosaic sanctions. Let's add um, the intricacies for the Jewish people. And eventually, if you're honest, you're going to say, I actually am a lawbreaker. I can't do all of these things with heart, soul, mind, and strength, with all the right motives all of the time. You're going to say spiritually, you're going to say uncle and tap out. God can declare all of the things that were unclean under the law clean because Jesus actually met the obligation. Jesus did actually keep a kosher kitchen. And he did it perfectly, even with the right motives, not grumbling or complaining. That's how. Jesus fulfills the law so he can actually make all things clean because in Christ, if you trust in Christ, even if you're not spiritually clean and you've not all done all the right things, if you're in Christ, God sees you as if you were the perfect son. So that's, that's one way of answering it. Another way of answering, how can God just declare things clean? Well, because Jesus not only did the right work, Jesus has the authority as the sovereign second person of the triune Godhead, King of kings and Lord of lords, to say that they're clean and they are clean. And I'm thinking of Mark chapter 7 verse 19. Thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Authority of Jesus. 
Jesus says so, that's how it is. Because of who he is and because of what he would do, which we've already talked about. Now, maybe just one more thing and then we'll move on rather quickly. In answering that question, how can God declare all things clean? Well, because of the work of Christ, because of the authority of Christ. But also, this one is Captain Obvious, but I want you to think about this. He can declare all foods clean because before the Jewish laws, before Israel was called to be a people to serve a particular purpose for a particular time that would not last forever, they were clean to begin with. They were clean before they weren't clean. Genesis chapter 1. They were only unclean for a certain time for a certain people to serve a certain purpose. Genesis chapter 1 verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. In other words, clean. Genesis 1.25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, clean. Genesis 1.31, to wrap things up and then I'll stop. I won't read all of the Bible to you. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. How could God take unclean animals and call them clean because they were clean to begin with. They were just unclean for a particular time, for a particular people, for a particular Messiah to be born to fulfill the particular obligations. Ta-da! Kind of interesting, I think. I hope you think it's interesting. Hmm. Uniqueness. It's not ultimately about the food. It's not ultimately about the food. It's all about the drama of redemption and God doing certain things at certain times to fulfill certain purposes. It's so much not about the food. Listen to this. It was not about the food. And I quote, it was about the food for a time in order to make a point about human inability to succeed in obtaining righteousness and about the need for trusting in the one and only righteous one who alone provides righteousness and his name is Jesus. People get so confused about, they think it's all about the food and the food laws and, you know, well, God, God said they couldn't eat lobster or shrimp, um, because back then they didn't have refrigeration and it wouldn't have been good for you and all. Um, just as an aside, if you live on the Mediterranean Sea, you don't need refrigeration for your shrimp. Just saying. <laughs> you just catch it fresh. And make ceviche right there. Okay. <laughs> it was because Israel was meant to be different for a time. And so they don't eat shrimp and they don't eat lobster. To celebrate this sermon, I bought some raw shrimp yesterday and I'm going to make ceviche today to the glory of God. Okay. Verse 11. And be, I, I'm not even kidding. And behold, <laughs> and behold at, but it is in the refrigerator. I just undid everything. Okay, verse 11 says, And behold, at that very moment, so in Joppa, when he sees that lobster's back on the menu, okay, at that very moment when he sees the food that you're supposed to eat now, at that very moment, on purpose in God's providence, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. Caesarea, that important 
predominantly Gentile city. So the Gentiles come, the unclean dogs come. Well, we should shun them and turn them away. But you know what had just happened? God had just helped Peter understand something about clean and unclean when it comes to food. And that carries over into understanding clean and unclean when it comes to people. It's not about the food. Now let's keep going. Verse 12 says, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making, this is really important, three words, making no distinction. So there's no distinction about the food anymore, and there's no distinction we're going to see about the people anymore. These six brothers also accompanied me. So there's eyewitness legitimacy underscored. And we entered the man's house. Cornelius's house, Acts 10, they went into the Gentiles house because Peter has learned from God. It might have taken thrice times, but all things clean now. So he goes into his house. This is risky and he's going to be criticized for it. Verse 13 says, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. And that should, I realize it probably doesn't. We've been out of the flow of Acts for a little while. That should just jump off the page. There's going to be salvation for you and there's going to be salvation for your household implied if you believe in Jesus. Well, that should jump off the page because that sounds a whole lot like what was said, anybody, for 500? In Acts chapter 2. This this is day of Pentecost mirroring. Day of Pentecost, the same thing was said when that extraordinary event happens because redemptive history is shifting. And the Spirit falls and, and Peter preaches and he talks about salvation in Jesus by believing in Jesus. And he says, to you and to your household, it's Acts chapter 2 verse 39, all that God calls to himself, it says. And here it's the same thing. Anybody remember that ad from maybe the 70s? I don't know what it was for. It's the same thing. And then they would say, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. I tried to find it on the internet, but I couldn't find it. But here we have that ad from the 70s coming up again. It's the same thing. I would offer some kind of prize, but last time I did that, I had to give two shirts away from the bookstore. <laughs> so this one's got to be free. But, but that, that, that's meant to be seen by us. Salvation to you. It's good news to you as an individual. If you believe in Jesus, you have salvation. It's good news to your whole family because if you believe in Jesus, anyone and everyone in your whole family will be saved too. And you know what? It's true for the Jews. Acts 2, Acts 11. This looks like Pentecost. Because you know what? It's the same thing. Same Savior saving the same way by faith in Jesus. And you don't even have to be circumcised to have it be true. Wow. This is great news. This is gospel news. You will be saved. If you're brand new to Christianity, that's not true for most of you, but it might be true for some of you. We talk about saved a lot because we're saved from God's justice. We don't have to face our good outweighing our bad because it's not going to. 
God requires perfect obedience. So we're saved from God's justice. We're saved from God ultimately. We're saved from guilt. We're saved from our own sin. We're saved from condemnation. It means to be delivered. It means to be set free. Notice, and it's God that doesn't. We don't save ourselves. You will be saved because it's all the work of Christ. But it happens the same way. It's the same way that it happens. We could take a lot of time here. I have more than enough information I would like to talk about because this is really significant theological salvation kind of history. We don't have enough time to do it all day long, though. But I did find it fascinating. Hopefully some of you will as, all, as well, where he says, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. Is that in verse 14? Yeah, a message by which you will be saved. And I just want to point out the obvious to you that on the face of it, that doesn't even make sense. A message is going to save you. That's not possible. How could a, how could a message save anybody? It can't. But he words it that way in particular because we're talking about the message about the person the historic person who acted in time and space history to provide atonement, reconciliation, and, and, and salvation because of what he's done, resurrection. And so what he's done is done. And now we don't bring salvation by following principles. We don't bring salvation by trying to do something ourselves. Salvation comes by a message. Because we proclaim the historic person and work, and that proclamation is a message. So I, I actually love the way he says it. A message doesn't save anyone, strictly speaking, unless it's a message about someone who actually did something. And unlike every other religion, Christianity is all about history and the perfect redemption, including bodily resurrection that happened in history. And we preach it as a message because we can't live it ourselves. Galatians 4, 4 says this about Jesus. But when the fullness of time had come, think about history. God sent forth his son in time and space history, born of a woman that happens in history, born under the law that happened in unique Jewish history to do something. Redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Early on, I said, we're going to talk about history. And it's history that's relevant to us because it provides adoption, redemption to anyone and everyone, even after Jesus is gone, who what? Who trusts in him, who believes in him. The message saves because the message is about the Savior who saves. I, I love discovering things like this and noticing the strange, if you will, way things are worded. Verse 15 says, As I began to speak, Peter again referring to what happened to him, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Going back to Acts chapter 2. Just as. It's the same thing. What happened to the Jews happened to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles didn't need to first become Jews to become Christians. No circumcision, no dietary restrictions, no mosaic observ observance, none of it. How about if we keep going? Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord. So he's connecting dots now when Jesus was on earth before his ascension. 
I remembered the word of the Lord. This isn't out of the blue that it happened this way. How he said, John baptized with water, referring to John the Baptist, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's thinking of what happened in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. And now in his mind, he's saying, look, this not only happened to the Jews, it happened to the Gentiles, Acts 11. If then God gave the same gift, it's the same thing. If he gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who did believe, even better grammar, who was I that I could stand in God's way? a good contrast. Back in verse 8, Peter says, I said, by no means am I going to eat ceviche with shrimp. By no means is what he said. And now contrast in verse 17, who was I? So from that food that will never touch my lips and has never touched my lips to this is the best I'm ever going to eat. From Gentiles are unclean and to be be avoided to we are spiritually the same. Something radical is happening here. We better keep moving. We better go quickly. Verse 18, when they heard these things, see, these aren't the Judaizers. These aren't the, these aren't the spiritual clowns that are going to dig their heels in and become false teachers. When they heard these things, the circumcision party, they're about to switch parties is what they're going to do. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. From verse 2, criticism, to verse 18, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great, great radical shift that happens in their perspective. They glorify God. They praise God. Peter, you've won us over with your explanation. And if what you're saying is true and you've got witnesses and we believe you're a credible witness, we're going we're to praise God. Again, paying attention to some of you who aren't used to some of the Bible terminology, the glory of God. We could say praise to God, but even literally it kind of helps me. They're giving the weight to God. All the weight, as in all the credit, all of the substance, all of the power goes to him. Sort of like if somebody's making an argument and they put a lot of weight on a particular portion of their argumentation because it's the most powerful. They put a lot of weight on that emphasis. Yeah, God is all of the weight. He should get all of the glory because he and he alone is the one who could even save the godless. They're going to praise him. They're going to give him the emphasis. They're going to give him the attention. And that is a good way to try to figure out false religion from true religion. Christianity is the only religion on planet earth, last time I checked, that in Latin does soli deo gloria. S-D-G. Soli deo gloria. To God and God alone be the glory. The significance, because God and God alone saves. Gentiles, the godless pagan worshipers, they're saved? How could that happen? Only one way. So when we say, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, based upon ultimately the authority of the Bible alone, then we end with, 
to the glory of God alone. It's why in heaven, we learn in the book of Revelation, the constant praise is, worthy is the lamb who was slain. I've said it a million times here. I'll say it again because some of you are new. In heaven, we're not going to get there and say, God, we did it. And that's a good way to tell false religion from authentic Christianity. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. It's miraculous. God has done it. It's miraculous that God saved the Jews. They're sinners as well. That's the argument of Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. But here, it's striking for the Jews to say, if the Gentiles are saved, God should be glorified because this could never happen otherwise. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9 is a great, great declaration. It's true here as well. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's the author and finisher of the faith. You might be interested to note, just as a a marginal notation to what we're talking about here, Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, talking about the Gentiles, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ, by what God has provided. The Jews were sinners also, but they had been given God's special revelation. They'd been given his unique covenant. They'd been given the sacrifices and, and all of the system and all of the types and shadows. But God also brought the Gentiles and brought them close and reconciled them in the church. Pretty amazing. Okay, a couple of points of application and then we'll really get things moving. One would be this, and it's an important one. It's an important one in our day amidst all of the absolute chaos about that is about division, and I don't need to elaborate. Jew and Gentile doesn't matter anymore if you're in Christ. If Jew and Gentile doesn't matter anymore if you're in Christ, it's the same thing. Then if you're in Christ, none of the actual background stuff matters. There is no legitimate basis for division. Guy Prentice Waters, who has, I think, the best commentary in print on the book of Acts that's contemporary, says it this way. The ethnic and cultural barriers that sometimes divide people in the world have no place partitioning God's people or compromising their fellowship. And he is absolutely right. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says this. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I love it. Jew and Gentile and everybody else. God welcomed me because of the work of his son. That provides the basis for me welcoming anyone and everyone else and you welcoming anyone and everyone else as a brother or sister in Christ. And I would submit to you that if we can't welcome anyone as a brother or sister in Christ, it's because we don't understand that God has welcomed us through his son based upon no merit of ours because we're sinners worthy of condemnation. But if I have that figured out and know God has accepted me solely because of his sovereign grace and the work of his son, then God be the glory. And now I'm motivated to think differently on 
the horizontal level because I understand the vertical level. And maybe one other point of application regarding this, and this one's a stretch, but I think it's the right stretch. Let's forget about Jew and Gentile. Let's forget about ethnicities. Let's just think about division for a minute and people who I don't like or people who you don't like or maybe people who you really don't like or people who you despise. And maybe, at least due to their behavior, rightfully so. Just know that the answer is faith in Christ. And if these Gentiles could be saved by God's sovereign grace, the people you despise could be saved by God's sovereign grace to the glory of God. And ultimately, that's their greatest need. But in my mind sometimes, I so despise people because of their actions and ideologies that I'm tempted to think they have to change their actions and their ideologies or God will never accept them or I will never accept them. When in reality, as a Christian, what they need most is to trust in Christ. And that does influence ideologies. But let's keep that in mind. I need that for my own soul, by extension at least. Okay, we better go. Verse 19, I think we have 30 verses to do. Now, those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that happened in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and following, Stephen was martyred. The Apostle Paul, who was not the Apostle Paul, then gave the thumbs up or down, depending on how you read that, but he wanted him executed, traveled as far as Phoenicia, northern Mediterranean coastland, and Cyprus, you know the island even today, and Antioch, so... Also to the north, think Syria, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Reading between the lines, it's probably because because of language barriers. But let's keep moving. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is going to be on the tip of Africa. Who on coming to Antioch. Antioch is important. It's already come up once. It's come up now again. I've underlined it. We'll talk about it. Who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists. They're going to be Greek speaking. Hellenization. They're going to be Greek influenced. Greek speaking. And it says preaching the Lord Jesus. So they're preaching the person of Jesus because the person of Jesus did things. They're proclaiming Jesus to them. Then verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So all kinds of great things in there. For the sake of time, the same thing keeps happening. Now they're able to preach. But what's significant is Gentiles are being saved. What's significant is Gentiles are being saved. In fact, lots of them, what's significant is Gentiles are being saved. Okay, it's the same kind of thing is happening. The gospel's going forth. But what maybe really stands out that doesn't stand out in our immediate understanding is they're being saved. And wow, like crazy in Antioch. Let me give you some boring things about Antioch. Then I'll give you some interesting things. How's that for honest? Well, you won't all think it's boring. Okay, located a major connecting point between trade routes from Egypt, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, Mesopotamia, and later Armenia and India. Significant place. 
Okay, it's a mosaic of Syrians, Greeks, Jews, Romans, so all different kinds of people. Ah, getting more interesting, more important, third largest city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Italy and Alexandria and Egypt. So number three on Rome's power significance list in the first century. And in that place that we're learning about here called Antioch, high culture, Sophisticated culture with low brow, bad, negative culture. All kinds of strange fertility religions, brutal sports, mystery religions. It's known for its gambling. In fact, their patron deity was a goddess of fortune. Known for gambling and things like their brothels and prostitution. In fact, from what we can learn from history, even Rome wasn't quite sure what to do with Antioch. I've not seen this. I've only heard people talk about it. There are actually, supposedly, I should say, depictions of a gutter coming from the east and from the west, depending on which side you're sitting on, um, funneling in these gutters, funneling into Antioch. All bad deranged, debased, morally debased things, the image shows, they all flow to one place, and it's Antioch. What do we do with this bad place we know as Antioch? I bring all that up, why? Of all places, right? Of all places for for Gentile Pentecost, if you will. (laughs) Gospel growth, if you will. I should put it that way, that's better. The gospel is going to thrive because the power of God unto salvation, what the Romans can't curb morally, it's going to be changed and transformed because of the power of the gospel. It's just like God to do it this way. 22 says, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. We learned about him in chapter 4. Good guy to go there. He's a native of Cyprus. When he came and saw the grace of God, which is, by the way, impossible... You can't see the grace of God. But you can see its fruit and you can see its evidence. He sees God has done something for these people here that they didn't deserve. He's given them something good. He sees the evidences of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel. He he came and saw the grace of God. It's striking. And he was glad. He's not envious. He's not bitter. He's not jealous. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. He sees what's going on here. He he, he sees what's happening here. And he just wants to encourage them. Regardless of what Rome tries to use you guys for, don't lose sight of the fact it's the gospel. Be resolute. Be committed. Be tenacious. Don't change your message. Don't change your identity. Don't change what you're doing. And do you love the way it's uh, verbalized? They were added to the Lord. Again, it's always God's sovereign grace doing these things. Added to the Lord. Union with Christ. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about the other things. 25 says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Why would he do that? Apparently he needs backup. Apparently, you know what? I bet I better get some help here. There's so many people being converted. I need help from Saul, also known as Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Two things to notice there ever so speedily. 
for starters, first called Christians. I think the Bible uses Christian three times. Not very often. First time here. And they're called Christians probably because it came from an outsider. Not because, hey, you know what we, you know we should call ourselves? They've been calling themselves things like the way we've learned because of Jesus says he's the way and the truth and the life. They're called Christians, probably derogatory. You know, those people, those people, they belong to Christ and all they talk about is Christ and redemption in Christ. And they're so wrapped up in Christ, it's all about Jesus. Everything and anything. When you go to their religious services, you know what they talk about? It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's Christ, Christ, Christ. Their identity is wrapped up in Christ. I think it's a pretty good derogatory name. It's kind of lost its saltiness in our day. When I officiated a wedding yesterday, I had to say, they're going to have Christian vows, so you all know they're not cultural Christians. They're Christians in the meaningful sense. But it really is a good derogatory word. If you're so known for the gospel, you're so known for playing the one-string guitar, you're so known for always being in that rut of, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Right? If you're so that good broken record, people are liable to label you Christians. At least in the first century. I wonder if a stranger could enter into our service here today as we met and we read scripture and we prayed and we sang songs and now we're studying the Bible. If they didn't know any better, would they label us moralists? Would they label us Jews? Might they label us Christians? Seems to me all they do is talk about Jesus. Their only hope ultimately is not in having their good outweigh their bad. They think that it's all because of God's sovereign grace. That would be a good thing if that happened. And also notice before we move on, I'll pose it in the form of a question, a provocative question. Why in the world would Barnabas go and get Saul to bring him to Antioch? Saul is a Jew, an expert in the Jewish Old Testament law. And now he's going to bring him to a Gentile place to teach Gentile Christians that they don't need the law? Hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. Why would the Apostle Paul call himself in Romans chapter 11 the Apostle to the Gentiles? You'd think you'd pick a Gentile to be an Apostle to the Gentiles. And he's an Old Testament expert. Hmm. I might make a suggestion that it's now time for the Gentiles to learn that indeed even the Old Testament is a Christian book. And who better to teach them than the Old Testament expert who's become a Christian? Fascinating, I think. Okay, verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And that would have been something because prophets weren't normal. They prophesied. They told about the future. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius, so we won't get into the history, but it's a historic reality. Here's what's going to happen, and it happened. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the leaders, or excuse me, the elders, who would be the leaders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Good way to end. Why is it a good way to end? 
Because these who have been loved by God amazingly, extraordinarily, and they've experienced the grace of God, the love of God when they weren't lovely, when they see a need and it's made known, they're compelled to love because they've been loved. It's a good way to end. It's a great way to end. They're new Christians, and what do Christians do? They know about guilt, and they know about grace, and now all of a sudden they're starting to show good actions because of gratitude, as we like to say, guilt, grace, and gratitude. We should wrap up for now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a great historic text like Acts chapter 11 to see people go from being the ones we would otherwise think are unsavable, certainly unsavory and unsavable. May it be a good lesson for us in the 21st century that apart from your grace, no one can be saved. We're all unsavable and therefore we know that through the power of the gospel, even those we would otherwise look down upon most certainly can be saved. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for life transformation that follows, a desire to love other believers that follows. We're thankful today to be able to even be reminded in a special, unique way as Jesus mandated to eat in remembrance of him, to drink in remembrance of him because he and he alone is the one who can save even the vilest of sinners like each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.